traditional multivitamins weren't doing women any favors. So Ritual reimagined one from the ground up. The result, essential for women. Two daily capsules made with the nine essential nutrients most women lack. Essential for women, the future is clear. And that's the joke of the copy because the the vitamins are clear. You may have seen them on Instagram. They look really good on Instagram. They're uh, little gel caps. And two things about them that are particularly awesome for me. One is that they are minty. I'm not sure how they got that to be true. Um, I don't know what the process is. And it's not like they're minty like a mint. It's more they just have a nice minty scent to them and they feel just a tiny bit minty in your mouth. And you don't get nauseated if you take them first thing in the morning. It is one of those things, if you are a multivitamin taker, like I have been for, you know, at this stage in my life, it is highly recommended that I take iron and calcium and things like that. Uh, One of the drawbacks is that you usually have to eat something before you have your multivitamin. Not so with Ritual. Ritual Essential is for women. It is the multivitamin reimagined from D3 to omega-3. Ritual Essential for women fills the gaps in a women's diet, all with that fresh minty flavor and no fishy aftertaste. For obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are 100% out there for the world to see. A subscription is easy to start, and it's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month. Whether you're living life or creating it, because they do have prenatal vitamins, why not add some good-looking science into your daily routine? Visit Ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's Ritual.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This week's guest is Kiese Lehman. His book, Heavy, an American memoir, is probably something that you've seen in your peripheral vision at some point in the past few months. It came out in October. It's already on a lot of best of lists. It is on my best of lists, not just of the books I've read this year, but possibly the books I've ever read. It is both incredibly personal and intimate and incredibly important. And my conversation with him, I think, expand that as well. And in some ways, although it doesn't sound like it would be a conversation about differences, maybe because you think of political differences, and Kiese and I, I'm pretty sure, voted for all the same people, but it's definitely a conversation about difference. And even more importantly, it's a conversation about connection. One of my favorite conversations I've had this year, I think you'll enjoy it. Kiese Lehman, coming right up. Let's see where to begin. I absolutely loved this book. And there is a part of me that is very nervous about interviewing you for many reasons. (laughs) But one of the reactions I had was it's rare to come across a book where I feel like, like, wow, like, I just want people to read it. Like, I have nothing left to say. Like... (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you said it all, (laughs) but that's not perhaps what listeners would are interested in. So I'll start somewhere else. Um, So this is an incredibly intimate book. Uh, It deals with, 
you know, obviously sort of the body mm-hmm. and the carnality, uh, weight specifically about human, you know, body weight, but also the weight of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fair amount of sexual violence in it. Yeah. And you are so unsparing. It is so vulnerable and raw. I wonder, you must get people coming up to you and wanting to tell you their stories. Yeah. Um, that was part <laughs> of the writing process I didn't take into consideration. Um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think that when the book, you know, when you write a book like this, especially a book that's written directly to your mother, I just, I thought about the nation, but I didn't really think about the people of the nation actually coming up to my body and asking me to help them. And that has definitely been happening a lot when I've been going across the country doing readings for the past uh, month. Um, and it's, it's, it's wonderful, but it's also scary because I don't often have what people need or want. Right. Um, but sometimes and usually actually people just want to listen. They want to be heard. And they think because of the story I told that I'm one a person who wants to listen. And I do. Uh, but if they need more than that, um, I, all I can really often say is, you know, I, I, I think I wrote the book that you might want to read. But if there's anything <laughs> more than that that you need, that's my, that might be outside of my pay grade. You know, it's amazing. I mean, I've discovered this in my own you know, professional and personal life, that that vulnerability breeds vulnerability. But what's interesting to me about it is that it it invites vulnerability from strangers. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas that vulnerability in our real life is harder to come by. Oh, that's so, so true. I mean, you know, one of the things that happened uh, maybe about two weeks ago, is I was I was giving this reading, this woman came up to me and she started telling me about her relationship with her mother how abusive it was. She put her hands on me. She started talking about the black woman who really did most of the raising. And she said how the black woman reminded her of her, uh, of my grandmother, the black woman who raised reminded her of my grandmother. And, you know, she, like she put her hands on me. She, she was a much older white woman. She kissed me on the forehead. And later that night, I went to the grocery store down the street from where we gave a reading. And, I, you know, I saw the woman and I'm thinking we're about to have a moment where we're about to like, you know, hug each other and say, oh, it's so nice to see you. And she looked right at me and then she, you know, like she didn't know who I was out of the context. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. After we shared such a vulnerable um, exchange, which was weird, right? But also at at that time of night, I was really happy that that happened in a strange way. You know what I'm saying? Like I was in, the, in the, <laughs> I was trying to get some avocados, you know what I mean? I didn't really want to talk about <laughs> what I thought she was going to talk about, but I did want her to acknowledge that we had talked about something like seemingly real. Well, you know, the reason that I I suspected that you might have people doing this is in part because of the experience I've had with people coming up to me and sharing their stories. Sometimes in these very strange situations, like I'm in a hotel lobby and someone wants to tell me about their experience with sexual assault, right? Mm -hmm. But also because, honestly, part of me wants to pour my heart out to you right now. Yeah. Like, (laughs) I have, like, all these things I could tell you we have in common, like all the stuff I identified with. Yeah. But your story reminds me of something else that I was thinking about, which is that I'm a white woman. Mm-hmm. So how do so I? I'm just very aware that my experience is in no way equivalent to yours. Yeah. Like my experience can't be yours. Yeah, I I don't know. I think that gets kind of complicated because 
after writing this book and talking to so many people, I, I do think that all of our experiences are, are made of the same constitution. Mm. I think the shapes are like incredibly different though. But, but I think that the constitution of the shape and like for me, that constitution is made of, you know, joy and shame. And like, there's all of us invest in cis patriarchy in some way, all of us invest in anti-blackness in some way, like those same ingredients, all of us want to be touched and loved in some form or fashion. But I think the shape of that desire, the shape of our anxiety, the shape of our fears and our horror, I think differ from person to person. Absolutely. But also from types of people to types of people. Do you know what I'm saying? So I, I would have not said this two years ago, but I think the constitution of all the shit that we do is the same. The constitution is the same. Mm. You know what I mean? That's what I think. But I think I agree with you too, but I'm interested in in how this is not something you would have said two years ago. Well, two years ago, like I just had a hard time understanding that like, for example, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a black man who lives in Mississippi and like, I didn't really want to talk or write much about my investment in anti-blackness, for example, or my investments in white supremacy. I wanted to write about white people's investments in anti-blackness, white people's investments in, in, in um, white supremacy. And I did a lot of that writing. But the harder writing for me to do was to think about how like these structural, these, these things that we dangle out here and we talk about in, you know, in schools or in books or whatever, like we all invest in that. Like, and they and those things all invest in us. And so I just wasn't at a place two years ago where I could really sit down and confront my particular investments, you know, in, in, in patriarchy and harm and literally like looking people in the face and telling them that blue was red and yellow was pink. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I just wasn't I didn't have the skill or the will to actually um, critique or reckon with my investments and in a lot of the things that I thought, you know, bad people were invested in. <laughs> And, I, and, and and so for me, the book became alive when I just you know, kind of like divested myself with the notion that there was going to be a hero in this book. Ain't no heroes in that book. You know what I'm saying? There's people trying to wreck and trying to make it to tomorrow, trying to love, trying to be touched. But ain't no heroes. And, you know, I think you write a memoir. I think we're taught that at the end of the day, like you got to tell people how you're how you're how you're heroic. You got to tell people how there's a resolution. You got to tell people how you're delivered. The book opened up for me when I realized that that is not at all my story. I could make it fit into that if I needed to, but that's not that's not my story. Yeah, one of the first questions that occurred to me after I, after I, I won't say shut the cover because I read it on my iPad, but <laughs> <laughs> after I set the book down, was actually about the subtitle "An American Memoir." Yeah, because you have a riff about that, um, you know, at the beginning of the book about what about the lies that you'd like to tell and about this conventional narrative that you feel like people want or that you wanted too, right. but you're not going to do it. Yeah. And and you you characterize that as the American memoir, which I think is true. The American memoir is the one with heroes and resolution. Right. Your book, although subtitled an American memoir, is not that. Yeah. I was trying to, you know, do this sort of big headed thing, which was to think that I had <laughs> the ability to like broaden what people consider the American memoir with this book. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I wanted on one hand to be like, yes, like there are lots of things that I think traditional conventional American memoirs are encouraging me to do. And I actually sold a book as one of those conventional American memoirs. It was a weight loss book. I was going to lose 150 pounds, talk to my grandmama and my mama about losing weight and their relationship to sexual violence. I did all those interviews. I wrote that book. It was okay. It wasn't good at all. And I hid in that book behind questions. And then I went back and rewrote the book to my mom um, 
because I realized in the writing of that first book, I was doing a lot of hiding. And what I wanted to say in that first paragraph is let people know at one hand, yes, like I am critiquing the memoirs that have come before me, the memoirs that I wanted to write, the memoir that I actually sold to Scribner. But in critiquing that, I'm creating another different kind of American memoir, which which in and of itself necessarily expands, I think, what we think of or what we can think of going forward. And that's why, for instance, the book is not an epistolary form. It's not a, it's not a letter. Right. It's a book written to my mom, not a letter. As a, you know, I think a lot of times we do this. We use a, the letter form as this kind of proxy for intimacy. But so much of my book also is about American books. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just really wanted the yeah. Americanness of of this journey to be a part of that title. And like the word heavy and like a lot of the words in that book, I wanted the reader to know like everything in this book can be read at least one or two or three, four different ways, including the title. Again, like part of what is going on in my head is I have a thousand different things (laughs) I want to talk about. Um, But I'm going to choose the hardest thing first, which is your mom. Okay. I was shattered to learn that she's still with us. I... I mean, I'm happy for you. That sounds terrible. Yeah. But the the frankness of this book, the frankness with which you talk about what you went through with her, what you did to each other, yeah, is something that, for me, it is hard to imagine doing that with someone who is still able to react. Right. Right. So, where did where did your ability to to do that come from? Like to write this raw, to know she was going to read it, to live with her reaction to it. Yeah, that's a great question. And again, you know, I've, I've had to judge a lot of memoir contests for the last few years. And one of the things we see is we see these very re- revealing memoirs written about people's parents after their parents have passed. Um, and I respect those memoirs so much. But, you know, my mother had me when she was super young. We were best friends for a lot of my young life. We were arch enemies for a small part of my young life. And she taught me to write, you know what I mean? Like she taught me to read and write. And so if I was going to do this book justice, I knew I needed to do it while we were both alive, which meant that I needed, I needed to ask her about things that I did not remember. And I was, you know, we, we had, we never said the word addiction in my house. We never said the word abuse. We never said the word sexual violence um, as a kid. And so I wanted to write a book where I, where I, where I kind of, you know, weaved my my way through all of those things. And to do that, I had to ask her about her memories of, for example, you know, calling me a fat ass or um, how it felt when she got abused by a man she loved with all of her heart. And then, you know, I tried to kill that man. And then later that night, they ended up having sex. Like I, we, you know, these things happened, but we never talked about them. And I just didn't want to wait till one of us was dead for one of us to talk about him. Do you know what I mean? So on one level, like on the very base level, this book was an attempt to keep my mama um, and my relationship with my mama alive. And uh, I couldn't do that. <laughs> Only way to do that is to write it when we're both alive. You know what I'm saying? And 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 I think particularly um, the thread about gambling and addiction was something that I just wanted to just write into directly and open up a number of conversations with my mom and my other, and my other family members about that. And, um, you know, this book is not about deliverance, but one of the things that's definitely happened is that, like, we're all talking now about our body's relationships to addiction and to violence. And that was something we just never did before. But it didn't start when the book got published, I guess is the main point I'm trying to say. is like my mom was along for the ride from the beginning 
of this right. book being a part of the world. So even when it was a weight loss book, you know, she was answering all my questions. And then when I realized I was writing it to her, I'd have to ask her, mom, what did your, what did your body remember when this happened? So she was there for it. That doesn't mean she loved. So the it wasn't a jump the, into the pool. You just didn't, you didn't dive into the, into the pool the deep end together. You kind of waded into it. I mean, you know, it's, it, I don't know about your relationship <laughs> with your mom, but it, it it's always diving into the deep end for me, you know, because that, but those relationships yeah. are so intimate and so laced with so much joy and so much terror. So the first time I remember telling my mom, so my mom, yeah, I mean, my mom had a particular relationship with gambling that um, I didn't realize was an, an addiction until about five years ago. But the when I first time I tried to say, Mama, I want to talk to you about my relationship with gambling. She was just, she didn't have anything to say. She was like, what do you mean your relationship with gambling? And I was like, Mama, you know, for the last three years, every dime that I made that didn't go to grandma went to a slot machine. And this was after I'd seen her spend every dime she had and and, and take money from me to spend every dime I had to spend money that I had. You know what I'm saying? So that, that that is a dive into the deep end. But like the good point, the good thing about those conversations is that like, we wanted the first conversation to be the last conversation, but because I was writing a book, it couldn't be, you know? So we had to keep revisiting mm-hmm. those conversations and keep talking about the layers and layers of addiction and keep talking about the ways and times that we saw each other at the casino, but we never said a word to each other because we didn't want to leave and we didn't want the other person to know that we were there. Do you know? So it was a dive. It was a deep dive. And every time it feels like a deeper dive, but it's consistent now. Like, I know we're going to talk every week about things that we were afraid to talk about before. If you're a listener to this show, you have heard me talk about FrameBridge because I use FrameBridge in my everyday life. I use them before they are a sponsor on the show. They make it ridiculously easy and affordable to custom frame your favorite things from art prints and posters to the photos on your phone. With holidays fast approaching, FrameBridge is the easiest way to send truly one-of-a-kind gifts to everyone on your list. Here's how it works. Go to FrameBridge.com and upload your photo, or they will send you packaging so that you can safely mail it in. Preview your item online in any frame style, or get one of their talented designers to do it for you. The expert team at FrameBridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece straight to you wherever you need it. A complete, handmade, personalized gift from FrameBridge starts at $39, is delivered in days, and all shipping is free. Plus, my listeners get 15% off their first order at FrameBridge.com when they use my code FRIENDS. And I've talked about a few different uses for FrameBridge. Um, My favorite is to commemorate things that you might not otherwise think of commemorating because it's, it's 39 bucks. It's a bottle of wine. It's lunch. And if you take a selfie with your friend that maybe you don't see as often as you want to see... It doesn't have to just get posted to Instagram. You can actually like make a real thing in the real world with it. I've actually done that recently with my family. We all went to Fort Worth for a family reunion that turned out to be kind of a reunion reunion because all my aunts and uncles went to TCU. And we took a photo on the campus with the TCU like big sign behind us. And it's we don't get together very often. And I decided I made that everyone's Christmas present. I just went to FrameBridge and uploaded the photo. And everyone, if you're listening, I guess, surprise. (laughs) I'm not sure how many of my relatives actually listen to the show on a regular basis. In any case, I know you'll love it. And listeners, you'll love it too. It is so easy to take something that would have been just a thing that lives on social media and make it a, a treasured object. 
With just a few taps of your phone, Framebridge lets you create a one-of-a-kind gift that will win Christmas and make someone happy for years to come. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code FRIENDS. You will save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com. Again, promo code FRIENDS, framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So I've actually talked on this show about how toxic white women's tears are. Okay. So I'm a little, (laughs) so I'm just tearing up a little, um, because, okay, so I'll share. Uh, so my mom, uh, is, is not no longer with us. My mom passed away. Uh, but one of the ways that you and I have some parallels is that my mom and I shared an addiction too. Mm-hmm. In our case, alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, but listening to you talk about, like, I have, you know, in some ways, like I've had to. Become, she also died of the disease, which is wow. Yeah, she died when I was a year sober. Oh my god! Whoa! <laughs> Can I ask a question? How how long ago was that? Six years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I, now I'm just going to do the list too. So my mom was Southern. Yeah. She was also precocious herself. Uh-huh. She was the first person in her family to go to college. I'm an only child. Oh. She pushed me so hard, but also, and this is a thread in your book that I just was fascinated by. She, she wanted me to succeed and excel, but doing better than her was also bad. Yeah, that's like real. that competition also existed. Yep, since my mom so was a writer, I couldn't write about that part. Can I just tell you, like, thank you for saying that? But there, there's there like pages of that, well, chapters of that book that I had to cut, and and one of the chapters was about like this strange sort of competition that comes from parents slash coaches who encourage you to be better, and then that weird yeah. thing happens sometimes when they think you're being better than them in some weird way. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't put that in the book. Oh. I hate to break this to you. 
essay, but it's in the book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. I could, I could, I couldn't, te- I couldn't hypertextually put it in there. I hoped it was in the subtext because it's there. It is it maybe, is. maybe just because I was super sensitive to like these parallels, but I definitely saw it. Oh yeah, you know that's real. Uh, and also hurting me to 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 try and not hurt me, like yep. hurting me as a way of trying to get me to stay in line with what she wanted, which was a good thing, you know, like she wanted me to excel. Like, how is that bad? Right. How do you, can I ask you a question? So, so how do you, so I have people sometimes who say stuff like, well, you know, whatever your mom or your parents or whoever did wrong, look where you are today. Like, do you, how do you deal with that? Mm. What do you say to people who say like, well, well, if your mom hadn't loved you tough, you wouldn't be where you are. What do you, do you, what do you do with that sort of statement or question? That is a really interesting question because I had the same thing for you. And that is also where we're kind of different, where our races, I think, make a difference of sorts because the intensity is different, Uh right? Like my mom wasn't worried about me dying, right? you know, like she should have been actually. Yeah, yeah. Because I I came really close a few times. Um, But how, as far as like, so you're a success, how is it, how is it bad the way she treated you? And I guess what I would say is that, um, you know, I still tried to kill myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what I wanted and what I still want and what the, the repair work that's still happening, and that it sounds like this is also going on in your family, is learning how to love people who don't succeed, who don't excel. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Finding worth just in one's existence. And that's what I, I sort of feel like, okay, all families are fucked up, right? Everyone's right. fucked up in a little bit different way. Right. But the story that you tell that, that makes me, that resonates with me is a, the story of like, I thought what I was supposed to get was unconditional love. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, were there conditions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, lots of conditions. And you know what's interesting though? It's like my grandma, like I, the hard part of writing that book was that I didn't want to make my grandmama like this perfect foil or something to my mom. But, you yeah. know, my grandmother was just like, she was, she's, she's just better at loving people than not just my mom, but like than I am, you know what I mean? Like, and she's complicated and she doesn't love herself in a lot of ways. And she's ornery with the people, you know, she has cancer and they had to take parts of her foot away. And she's really terrible to the people who take care of her because she took care of people her entire life. So she's super critical. But the closest I came in my life to unconditional love was was my grandma and i just don't know that i, I know i would not be here were, were it not for that so the thing that, that that like amazes me is that there are people in this world who do not ever get that sort of like responsible love from people who and they still somehow make a way and you know i think they're burning up inside and i think all kind of terrible things are happening but i think we conflate privilege with power a lot of times in this country but like i know i am so privileged to have a grandmother who loved me like holy especially in the face of a lot of stuff that was happening in my community and in my family. You know what I mean? Like, so did you have anybody like that who like actually and did my dad. give you that kind of love? Yeah, my dad okay. was, um, they divorced. And so he was not present, present. Right. But he tried to be, and actually we're talking about your book and how heavy it is and how, um, you know, like some of the, a lot of the pain, but obviously like there's joy and there is revelation Oh yeah. in 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 your life too, absolutely. And also, one another parallel. My mom was a reader. 
My mom was a person who loved words more than anything else. Did she push um, you to love words? Well, I don't know if she pushed me because I love them. I love them so much. Like, how can I know? Uh If you would, right, right. (laughs) I I mean, she's the person who normalized reading for me, though. Uh Like, it took, because I'm an only child and, like, didn't have a ton of friends. It took me a while to realize that, like, not everyone, like, just walked around with a book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's real. Um, my, my house was the house where, you know, my mom was terrible with money, but she 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 couldn't pay bills, but she bought books and she got free books too because mm-hmm. she was a teacher. But um, so my house was like the house where people if people wanted to look in the cycle. This was before the internet, obviously. We wanted to look into the encyclopedias. They'd always come to our house because my mom wouldn't have money for like we'd have nothing in the fridge, but we'd always had the freshest encyclopedias. You know what I mean? So like it was like yeah. it, was, it was the spot. It was it was like the library of our neighborhood. Our house was. And that's the part when people ask me, like, so how can how she raised you be bad if you turned out the way you did? Right. Like the part that I've always been able to value is is books. Yeah. You know, is reading. Like, I actually sometimes worry that I have an addiction to reading. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, real. I think people need to talk about that more. You know, that's real. <laughs> well, let's talk about addiction some because um, okay. that is a, a real theme in the book. <laughs> And I think I found something kind of cool um, that I don't know if you intended to do, um, okay. but there's a lot of repetition in your book, right? Oh, like absolutely. I know that that's intentional. You're an incredibly careful writer. Yeah. And there's certain phrases that just, that are chorus right. to the book, right? Yeah. I, we laughed and laughed until we couldn't is uh-huh. one of them. Uh-huh. And there's other kinds of repetitions too. You keep returning to certain scenes yeah. and kind of retelling the scene. And you talk about sort of generational problems and and and, and love, right. and that's a kind of repetition. And you talk about revision, yeah, and that's a kind of repetition. Yeah, and addiction is a kind of repetition. Absolutely. Are you in a twelve step program? No, I haven't. That's uh, that's another reason when people come talk to me, I'm 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 always like I don't know what to tell you because I haven't I haven't <laughs> taken care of myself the way I'm supposed to. I have never been to therapy, and I'm and I'm always like I'm gonna go next yeah. week, but. I never do. Well, I, you know, 12 step program saved my life. You know, your mileage may, may vary, but one of the sayings that I think you will appreciate is, and it, it's, it's outside the rooms too, is, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and ago, over again and expecting different results. Right. Like, what do you see in your book as the value of that repetition? Because yeah. I think in your book, there's good things and bad things about it. Yeah, there's, that's a great question. I mean, for readers, I want this. I want I want refrains to work the same way uh, refrains work in music, right? I want the reader to, in a book that I feel like is so chaotic, I want them every now and then to be like, okay, I'm coming back to the safe space. But then I want to challenge the safe space. So like when we come back to, for example, I laughed and laughed and laughed until I didn't, you know, like. Yeah, like there's there's a lot happening in that sentence. Like there's laughs and laughs and laughs. And then there's the end of laughs. And in my family, the end of laughs should be where we step into yesterday. We step into where our bodies have been yesterday. Too often, we we never did, right? So we would just kind of wait and wait and wait until the next laugh came. 
you know? And so in some way I want the reader to experience that with us. Like I'm dealing with this, I'm trying to deal with this. And in the midst of everything that's happening in that book that in some way is a particular kind of terror, there's still like different kinds of laughter. Sometimes it's completely bodily laughter. Sometimes it's like hyper intellectual laughter, but the laughter is where I want people to breathe and feel like they might be safe. But that's the thing about like, I think American notions of safety and freedom, like they are completely fleeting, right? Like they don't sort of kind of exist um, the way we want them to in terms of like being like forever deliverances. And so like, I just wanted mm-hmm. people, I wanted to mimic, I, th- I feel like the the process of of reckoning and, 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 and fiending for deliverance with that kind of repetition, um, particularly with the laughs. Um, and I wanted people to think about, I mean, this is what a lot of people have already written about this, but in my life, you know, when I felt like the most euphoric, like I was starving myself, I wasn't eating for days at the end. You know, I felt like the most free often when I was, you know, lying my ass off to somebody who would never lie to me. So I'm really just trying to create a text where people question all of these, I think, maybe human notions, but definitely American notions of freedom, of safety, of deliverance. And and I'm kind of just trying to reiterate something I say all the time, which is like it, it's just about the work, right? It can't just be about the fine the, the 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 end goal. It has to be about like the daily work of talking and working and listening and mining those places we don't want to mine. And to do that, you also have to create some sort of rhythmic thing to drag readers through a book. You know, you got to give them a reason to turn the page. And so that's one of the main thing repetition does. It gives you as a reader opportunity to turn the page because you think not only you're gonna read something new, but you're going to also experience something you've already experienced. And that, and that can make you feel like, you know, the book, you know, like hooks make us feel like we know songs more. Right. And so that's what I was trying to do with the art, the literary art, something I've seen done a lot with like musical and oral art. And listening to you talk about um, the illusion of safety and kind of wanting to play with that and point it out that it's fleeting and that there is no rest here. Right. Right. It's about the work. It's about the struggle. That actually reminds me a little bit of the addiction part of repetition or how, mm-hmm. you know, repetition and addiction, what they have in common, which is a lot of people think that um, with uh, any addiction, like you're cured, right? right? Yep. You get better. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know that's not true. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and in some ways, that doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is not a great description of addiction because I think one of the ways that you recover or you get sober in my case is you are given those same situations over and over and you just have to do something different, but you keep getting those situations. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Like they still happen. Like someone, something that I, like my in-laws don't seem to understand. They think that we don't, that my husband's also in recovery. Like, I remember one time she got really upset. My mother-in-law got upset because she asked me if it was how I felt to not want to drink. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I want to drink. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, right. Are you are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I want to drink all the time. I'm an alcoholic. Right. Like that's, right. <laughs> that's it. what I do now. But I just now like I have ways of negotiating that. Right. Yeah. But if I expected to go through life without ever wanting to drink again, I would fail. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't, and, I don't, I don't drink, but you know, I do, I, I, I like to eat and at different, when I'm not eating, <laughs> I like to starve and I like to, you know, yeah. <laughs> sit in front of fucking dealers and, 
and try to lose my money in creative ways. And I'm not saying those are all yeah. the same thing as alcohol, but they, I, I feel like they're similar. Like I want to go fucking, I want to go starve myself right now. And I also want to go eat up yeah. all the pizzas <laughs> in this brother's house who <laughs> let me use his studio if he has any, you know what I'm saying? Like I want to, yeah. but um, you know, like the question to me is like, you know, how am I going to not do that? And why am I going to not do that? But I, part right. of me doing what is remotely healthy for me is accepting every single day that I want to. Do you know what yeah. I mean? That for me, for me, for yeah. me. But also the thing that you made me just think about is that like, like this book couldn't have gotten written without, you talked about your addiction to reading. Like my mother created an addiction of me of reading, of course, but also of writing. And so yeah. I don't have kids, you know, I live by myself. Like, I write every morning for two hours before I really get out of the bed. I write for two hours before I go to bed. Like it is addictive and it has gotten in the way of like relationships in life because like that's something I'm not willing to bend around, mm. but I feel like it is addictive, right? Like it is, it's why this book got written. It's why like, you know, I don't know how successful the book will be, but it's, it's, it's why the book was written, how it was written because like, I like, I'm obsessive about that book. I've revised that book twice since it's already been published, you know? And, and some people might be like, oh, that's great and all that. But uh, I don't think that's great. Like, just some, some, sometimes, like, some things, yeah, some things aren't I, to be done. We definitely could have a meeting, like a 12-step meeting about reading and writing. Um, but I kind of want to point, I, I want to get a little bigger. I have ways to go that are bigger and smaller here. Okay. Let's go bigger for a second, which is that one of the things that's in your book is a history, right? Is the repetition of history, the yep. repetition of of the suffering. I don't, I don't know if you sort of say something about how suffering isn't necessarily the way to put it with black people, mm-hmm. but let's just say white supremacy that covers it. Um, the 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 cycle that that exists there, and I think like one thing that I talk about on the show a lot is that a lot of white people think that once we've identified that cycle, that means we're cured. Right. And I think (laughs) your book is a rejoinder to that. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and again, I'm not trying to make parallels with everything, but I think, I mean, I think similar things happen with, you know, particularly cisgender men who purport to be some kind of feminist. You know, I think we think just naming just naming our investments in harm is the work. And I think that that is part of the work, but the work necessitates naming and reckoning and changing and changing and reckoning and changing. You know what I mean? But in a culture, I think, that's so obsessed with different kinds of creative ways to lie. Like, I think particularly like different white people who just tell the truth. Like, I know black folks, we we, we will clap for those folks in a a hurry. And in my experience, like, you know, when I tell the truth about harm that I've like, you know, emotional harm that I've done to women, like the people who clap the most about that and like give me the most props are women. Right. I'm not dissing women for doing that. I mean, I do the same thing for different groups of people, but I'm just saying like naming, we can't get through or, or in anything with less we name it, but naming it is not the work. Right. It's not, it's not like hard work. It's not like liberatory work. It's hard to name stuff. But the liberatory, the liberatory, like good work comes after the naming. But it's hard to even get yes. there when people congratulate you and the culture congratulates you just for naming what you've done. You know what I'm saying? I just I just think it's more important. I think I think I think naming is, is a part of it, a part of this liberatory practice I want to be a part of. But it's not the end. I feel like we're in a real naming phase right now. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. 
like a lot of my fellow white folk have discovered terms like white supremacy and patriarchy and mm-hmm. intersectionality. And um, those are cool terms. Mm-hmm. But another metaphor that that works for me, and I've mentioned it here before, is actually, um, again, addiction, but this time for whiteness, mm-hmm. like for power. Right. Which is to say like white, right now I feel like white people are in the just hit bottom stage mm-hmm. of addiction where it's like, oh shit, like this is really bad. Right. And and we're also just making promises that we're going to get better. But it's really hard to get better. It is. <laughs> it is really hard to get better. It's, I mean, that's just, it's hard to get better. Right. Like that's what I'm trying to say about the constitution of all the shit being the same. Like, yeah. How, how do you get, you know, like I think we're in a culture where, for example, like so many people I know want to call out transphobia. Right. But yeah. few of those people want to talk about how transphobic we are or they are, you know what I'm saying? And I think that that's the same thing that happens. I definitely think with like white supremacy, I definitely think with patriarchy and like, it's interesting though because a, a significant and the harder thing that makes it even harder is that a significant number of people don't even want to name it. You know what I mean? Like, don't. Yeah, even, I mean, that's true too. I think white people are, are starting <laughs> to do the work, but a lot of white people are not doing that work. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So, yeah. and I think that because so many people are not doing the work, it can get, make you feel even better when you do do like that initial work of like naming something. You know? Yeah. No, it's a, we're in a pickle yeah. <laughs> like, because. Like you, as you mentioned, there's so many people not, not even doing the naming. Right. Just had an election in Mississippi, I understand. Yeah. Uh, and that went exactly as predicted because um, yeah. of white people. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a, you know, I, I moved back here. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I left here, uh, had a life in New York, got 10 year of Vassar College. And, um, but I always wanted to come back home because Mississippi is, again, because my mom, my mom was a political scientist. She really loved Mississippi. She really loved the promise of Mississippi. And I wanted to come back and, and work. But, you know, when I moved back in 2015, like I did not anticipate the Trump thing. And I'm not trying to say that like that changed everything at all. But, you know, I, I live in Jackson. I lived in a Jackson, which was now like an 85% black city. I moved to Oxford, which is not an 85% black city. And so when I decided to move back to this kind of Mississippi, I didn't expect that the nation would decide that President Trump would be our president. I didn't think about what mm-hmm. that would do to my body, you know, going to sleep in a neighborhood surrounded by people who I didn't know and who I assumed all voted for Trump. Of course, that's not true. But my assumption was that, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I think that there's like this environment where just, I mean, yeah, you see it even with Trump, like when he did his prison reform thing the other day, a lot of people I respect came out and they were like, you know, we got to give him brother props for what he did with the prison reform, you know, because nobody else. And I'm like, okay, do we, do we, do we, do do we really like talk about, let's talk about that. Um, And so, and, 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 but, but it's, but it's a paradox because Thank goodness there is some sort of prison reform happening. And I know and we know that prison reform would not be happening had it were not for like the organizers on the ground who have made prison reform and, and you know, uh, like part of like sort of regular everyday conversation for a lot of us. But at the same time, we, you know, it's that it's that desire for deliverance. Like we can't we can't act as if Trump's strange, weird kind of prison reform. And I think people really need to look at what he actually is supporting is is a panacea, though. I know a lot of people who made that work possible. 
Do you know? So I don't want to disrespect the people who made the reform possible, but I also think we need to think more about the paradoxes of reform. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the thing I always point out when people want to celebrate that is that the federal prison system is really tiny. Super tiny. Super tiny. It's almost all all state run. (laughs) You know, to to call, you know, get back to me when he just lets everybody go. Right. (laughs) Like that, that would be an an interesting stab at at prison reform. But what would be even more interesting, like this is the thing about, and I don't want to get too much into this because I'm sure you don't want to talk about it either, but like, you know, Trump is up, and this is, and I think we, we use Trump as a proxy for like American problems that we need to talk about. But like, this is a man who we all know has committed a number of crimes. The question is whether or not they catch him, right? <laughs> so like yeah. a, a dude who's committed, who's committed a number of crimes, to my estimation, who's never been put in handcuffs because of who he is, because of how much money he has and because of how he looks, is sitting up there talking about prison reform. I don't I don't drink. I don't smoke crack. I, I just started doing edibles like a few months ago. And I've been in handcuffs four or five times, always for drug related things that I did not do. This man has never been in handcuffs. Do you know what I'm trying to say? And it's not about Trump. It's about like that, that like, like, so what does it mean that, that a man who has committed felonious acts can sit up in front of the world and talk about prison reform and there's nobody asking him to be accountable for the crimes that he has committed and gotten away with scot-free. So any sort of prison reform that's built on the back of somebody who was a, who was an unrepented criminal, but never prosecuted is going to be suspect prison reform. And to me, that's not about Trump. It's about like the power we put into people like Trump. Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. like that, that's what's Ill about, Ill about it to me. I'm looking at this dude. I'm like, man, like, do you know, like if I did a, a smidgen of the things you did, <laughs> I'd be locked up under the state prison under, you know? Oh, and we, people have pointed out a thousand times, like if a black guy had multiple wives, multiple children with multiple wives and conducted his business the way that Trump does, like, right. He might still be a celebrity, I guess, <laughs> but I don't think he'd be elected president. No, no, no. I mean, that's, and this is what, and this is to me again, like what I'm, I'm trying to get through this in the book too, is like, I'm very critical of Obama, but if something yeah. happened to the body of Obama or Malia or Sasha or Michelle, I am going to be one of those people that tears up everything. You're not going to hear about me tomorrow. There's no way I'm going to be alive. Why? Because this is a man who did everything he could in terms of how he comported himself to be non-threatening to people for whom he was never going to be accepted. Right. Like if you hate on Obama, like what are you going to think about me, my grandmama, my mama, like people who really have really harsh critiques of the way white supremacy has infested this country? Like that dude would not even call people who called him a terrorist. He wouldn't call them what they really were. And they still, (laughs) you know, went out of their way to harm this brother. And I'm super critical of that dude. I went to the White House to talk about how fucking ridiculous that my brother's keeper initiative was. You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, like, we just see so much about what our country is by what, what, who it chooses to punish and who it chooses to hold up. And the nation wanted to punish Obama for giving them health care and having a fucking African sounding name. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) You spend one third of your life in the sheets, which, why, that's a funny way of putting it. But anyway, this holiday season is a great time for a betting update for you 
or a loved one. I am talking in this case about Brooklinen. Uh, Brooklinen sent us some sheets to try out. They are amazing. They, like other high-end sheets, have the envelope-style pillowcase, which may seem like a weird thing to care about, but I'm kind of you know, obsessive about these things. And it just makes your bed look neater if your pillows don't have that like gaping thing on the end of it. Uh, And also they stand up to wear and tear pretty well. I only just got the sheets, but I also have a young dog, um, which means we have to wash our sheets more often uh, than maybe normal people do Uh, because, well, uh, before your imagination gets away from you, because the dog will sometimes like leap up onto the bed with his dirty paws. So these sheets have been through a lot. They get softer with every wash. The colors are really amazing. Uh, They have some very like subtle kind of, you know, high-end screaming <laughs> patterns uh, that I also ordered. I actually ordered more sheets on my own dime. They also have towels, robes, and candles and sleep masks that all make for great gifts as well. They're super fast shipping. Make sure you can get your holiday gifts right on time. They work directly with manufacturers and directly with customers with no middlemen, and that is why they can give you five-star hotel-quality sheets that are affordable and easy to order. They don't just feel amazing, but they look great too. As I said, you can mix and match over 20 colors and patterns. I love my Brooklyn and sheets. They are incredibly comfortable. Give yourself an upgrade. Brooklinen.com is giving my listeners an exclusive offer. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code FRIENDS at Brooklinen.com. Brooklyn is so confident in their product and their sheets and comforters and towels. They come with a lifetime warranty. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use the promo code FRIENDS at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code FRIENDS. Brooklinen, they are the best sheets ever. As you know, the holidays are the busiest time of the year, especially at the post office. And that is why I use stamps.com. It saves so much time during this hectic holiday season. You have more important things to do than stand in line. Do your postal stuff on your own time. It's like a post office on demand. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Post Office right to your desktop. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. And then the mail carrier picks it up. No trips to the post office required. It could not be easier. Print postage any day, anytime. Stamps.com is always open. It not only saves you time, though, it saves you money. And with all the time and money you save, Stamps.com is the best gift you can give yourself this holiday season. I use Stamps.com for all the reasons cited above. (laughs) Um, I don't particularly uh, like hewing to other people's schedules. I like things that are on demand, like podcasts, for instance. Uh, And it is great to be able to do the busy work um, at times when other people aren't working. Uh, That's actually a lot of the time when I'm doing, like, my bookkeeping and my uh, sort of the boring, busy work stuff, which can include mailing things. And I don't want to use my day. I don't use my valuable day for it. I can do it at night. I can like turn on the tube and have a football game in the background while I do my Christmas mailing. So right now, you too can enjoy Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage. They took radio off of the description of the microphone. I like to believe that's because of me. 
because I refuse to say radio microphone because it's a podcast microphone. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's stamps.com, enter friends. You know, I really appreciate a thread in, in even this conversation we've just had that's about kind of national politics. I've just noticed every time you bring up the body. Right. Right. Because it all lands it's there. So pr- it starts there and it lands there. It all lands there. there. Even when you just said about healthcare, I was like, oh, yeah, the body. The body. Healthcare. Absolutely. You know, the body. And I think white people are less comfortable with their bodies in general, perhaps. I think we're pretty neurotic. And so I don't know if this is a reaction, if it's my whiteness, but there's a lot about your book that made me uncomfortable because mm-hmm. it's so, and I, I think this is the right word, carnal. Yeah. It is invested and it's sensual right like it's not always a pleasantness there's not always like a feel good right but it's you you really talk about bodies about sexual bodies about unattractive bodies right what can i get out of that like where what are you wanting me to to feel man that's a big ass question right there um I, I don't know that I telegraphed it as much as what I want you to feel. What I want you to do is if you if you think that if you think that this art object is, you know, lush and carnal and trying to confront things that purportedly the author does not really want to confront. I want all readers, including you. And I'm saying this because you, you know, you have you have inspired that work that you actually read. I want you to even when comfortable, go even further in talking about the ways that like the anxiety around your body is connected to the person in the room with you, connected to the person, the people outside the room, and ultimately connected to the policies of these country. So I want I want to know your story. I want to know your heavy story. And then I want us to organize mm-hmm. around these heavy stories. And I want us to make ourselves heavier and a desire to push back and to make life better. I want to create second chances, healthy choices, and good love for people who are the most vulnerable. And understand that all parts of the parts of us that are the most vulnerable. You know what I'm saying? Even if you're the richest person in the world, there's parts of you that are completely vulnerable. How can you tend to that? You can't tend to it if you don't commit to some certain sort, a certain kind of honesty, right? So I'm asking people who read this book to feel and to see and ultimately to love and invest in black children because I feel like black children are, are like are like black children and native children, indigenous children in this country are not like through policy are not loved, but we can't completely change policy, but we can change how we talk to ourselves. We can change how we react to one another. So I'm asking you, I'm asking people to really change and look and go back while looking at this book. And I don't want people to look at this book as a spectacle. I want them to look at something that can work with that, that, that they can work with. Uh, nobody asked me that question. I before, feel like so I appreciate that. If far, if far be it for me to be your editor on this, but since you believe in revision, I'm going to make a suggestion, which is I think you want people to feel. Oh, yeah. Like, like, and I think that's actually a revelation I just had about this book, which is that it's it makes you feel things beyond. It's not just feeling emotion. It is right. a feeling in your body. Right. Like, that is what I think this book does. Yeah. Is it generates sensation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think that the power of you getting on what I can consi- what I think of as uncomfortable places, mm-hmm. writing that made me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. What's the definition of discomfort? Not it's being uncomfortable in your body. Right. right. And I definitely felt that. I definitely was aware of my own body 
in a way that I don't know happens when one reads literature. <laughs> right. You know? Right. And also people <laughs> think about the feelings of, of comfort. That's what I'm also, that's what's also scary to me is yeah, like yeah. the times when we do feel so comfortable doing things that we know are wrong. And I think sometimes we feel comfortable because they're wrong. And I just think like, you know, I think, I think we, we, we have a strange understanding of like right and wrong in this culture. And we think, you know, like I know sometimes when I've done shit that's not just wrong, but like harmful to people, I knew it was harmful. And I was like, I'd rather hurt that person than tell the person the truth about then have that person see me that's that's usually what mm-hmm. lies are really rooted in right and so i wanted to talk about like the comfort too that we have in deception deceiving ourselves but also deceiving other people and how and how like the nation like who really pays the price for a nation that is very comfortable with, with where it, it is in terms of progress who who really pays the price and i think everybody does you know what I'm saying? Not just poor black kids in Mississippi, which is the, pe- the people I care about the most, but I think really white kids, really white old people in Greenwich, Connecticut also pay the price, but they don't know they pay it. You know? Yeah. You, you actually touch on something in the book that a friend of mine who does a lot of work around racial justice talks about, which is that if we're going to have justice in this country, white people need to love themselves more. Oh, 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 I mean... Oh, absolutely. I think <laughs> it's I, I, yourself, I tell right? you. <laughs> yeah. No. And she she's white. And um, she and I have, I won't say argued, but definitely like I'm still in my like, I want my merit badge for being woke phase. Right. You know, <laughs> I'm still trying to get I'm trying to get my double yeah. secret, super good merit badge for wokeness in yeah. a white woman. Yeah. So. When she talks about that, I'm like, oh, no, 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 I can't. No, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. We are so bad. Right. So I would like to hear from you more about this, because the quote that I'm thinking of, I'd fallen in love with provoking white folk. This is when you were in college. Yeah. Which really meant I'd fallen in love with begging white folk to free us by demanding that they radically love themselves more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is, I think, a phase a lot of black writers go through, particularly down south, is that. Um, I was at a really conservative college and I started writing these things that were really critical of like white supremacy. And a lot of the people, including the president and administrators, did not want to be provoked in that way. And a lot of things that I was saying was like, we, we need to really think about what it means to be on a college campus where Greek men run the campus and never get held accountable for anything. Right. Is that a loving, healthy campus? And I was trying to say, write that kind of stuff in satirical ways. But then I just became addicted. Like, I, like there were things that, like, this is what I always say. Like, I couldn't talk about, um, at that time, um, stuff I was learning about in women's studies. I couldn't, like, practice that. Because to me, that wouldn't have titillated white people. That wouldn't have got white people to, like, be mad or to change or whatever. And then I got kicked out of school. And then I was like, damn, y'all, like, they wouldn't listen to Fannie Lou Hamer. Some of them wouldn't listen to Baldwin. What's like? Why was I spending so much time trying to get these people to change when I could have been using my ink to do something else? And so for me, heavy is a book. I don't know if it's a marvel or anything, but for a person who found so much pleasure in critiquing the policies and practices of white people to move from that sort of work early in my career to what that book is doing. And there's critiques definitely in there. But what I'm also trying to say is make explicit is that like, we spend a lot of our time trying to correct white people because like it hurts to have the y'all foot on our necks. That shit doesn't feel good. But 
But there are a lot of black nationalists out there that we've read about who've gone, who've died trying to do that exact same thing and never reckoned with their inability to love themselves, never reckoned with their homophobia, never reckoned with their heteropatriarchy, never reckoned with the trans antagonism. And I'm just trying to say we have a limited amount of time on this earth as artists. And so we can, yeah, we could spend all of our time trying to correct white folk, but at the expense of what? Us. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm not saying it has to be either or, but in my lifetime, early on, it was like, you write. And my mother liked that kind of writing. She wanted me to write the kind of writing that made white people want to change. And I was like, but, but there's a lot of things we're not talking about. If we do that, mama, can we, I want to do something else. And so that's what I tried to do. Yeah. I think I want to split out sort of the, where we got there because you definitely make clear in the book that that's a phase and that you're somewhere different now. Like you just said, like you're less concerned with like Ha- provoking white people, although I think you probably provoke them plenty. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> but I'm more interested in like the project of white people should be. I mean, I say it on the show that like, we need to police ourselves. Yeah. You know, like we. Uh, one of the funniest moments I've ever had in this show was this friend of mine who was telling me about he he his wokeness, and he said. The first stage was when he started trying to tell his black friends how they should talk to white people. Mm-hmm. That's true. Had, uh, yeah, yeah. How'd that go for you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's I, the first stage for a lot of white people. Okay. Yeah. But then the next stage is how to talk to each other. Right. Yeah. Which is hard. And yeah, because also we're sort of, we're all in these different places. Right. And there are some of us that are in our merit badge stage. Some of us who have just figured out that wokeness exists and mm-hmm. some people who are voting for President Trump. Now, I've kind of decided I'm not going to really think about those guys very much. Well, I'm going to think about them, but my project is not to recruit them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to – I think that that is – well, we can have a whole other show about that. Right, right. right. I think that my time and energy is better spent – talking to people who already want to listen. That's tough, though, for white folks, though, right? Because, like, unlike us, you probably have people in your family who are diametrically opposed to you politically in terms of, like, presidential stuff, for example, right? So I'm always torn. Like, what? So, like, should we encourage people not to work within their families to make differences? You know, I don't know any... There's nobody in my family I know who voted for Trump. I don't know any black people who voted for Trump. (laughs) And maybe they did, and they just don't talk about it. So, like... So when I'm talking to my grandmom and my mom and them, like, I'm trying to talk to them about other things. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm trying to talk about, like, can we really talk about how, like, this bathroom ban in Mississippi could impact, like, the people in our lives that are queer, right? That's a conversation I want to have. But the conversation of whether or not they should vote for somebody who says, grab them by the pussy, like, that's not a conversation I don't even, I don't even, nobody in my family wants to have that conversation because the answer is no. Why would we ever vote for somebody like that? So I'm trying to say, I feel for white folk because even the ones who purport to be woke <laughs> have a cousin, an uncle, a sister, a brother, a best friend, a next to best friend who feels completely different, right? Yeah. And so do y'all, with my students, I'm always like, work on those people. But at the same time, I'm not, I don't know that those people who realize that Trump is, is you know, a terror, are necessarily woker than people who don't, you know, because I think I think it's bigger than Trump is what I'm trying to say. It's way bigger than Trump. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. And so that's a question that basically is like the undercurrent of this entire podcast, right? Is like, how do we negotiate our lives with people who have different points of view? And sometimes, especially when those points of view aren't just a different point of view, but actually implicitly violent. Right. Towards people that we care about. Right. 
right? Right. Because um, I would say, yes, I do have people in my life that are Trump supporters. I know Trump is not the end-all, be-all, but he has become a very, well, it's a litmus test. Yeah. And for someone in my family that supports policies that Trump supports, they are implicitly supporting a policies that do physical violence yeah. on people that I care about. Like people who I care about will be hurt and traumatized. Right. And Trump is supporting those policies because those people supported those policies before Trump was president. That's what's so yep. fucked up about it, right? Yep. And so so I think the question, I don't think there's one answer to that question, right? Yeah. Because I think at some point you have to draw, like I feel like at some point I'm, I have to draw lines. Right. I think everyone has to be able to look themselves in the mirror. Yep. But at the same time, like I think about my nieces and nephew yeah. and how I don't want them to have an experience in childhood where everyone around them agrees. Right. Right. Maybe that's a dodge. Maybe that's an excuse. No, I feel that. But, I, I definitely feel what you're saying. Um, but I also feel like before people try to come up with another strategy of how to go about this. And I, and it feels like your strategy is organizing with people who are, are possibly like-minded to, to confront the system, right? Confront people. Yeah. And, and I also just hope that like white folk sort of, and this is, I feel like a sellout for saying this, but I, I do hope that they really try to work hard in their families with people who might support policies that make healthy choices and second chances less likely for people in this country. So um, I understand organizing, organizing with folks who are sort of like-minded doesn't mean that y'all all agree, but it means like you've got a base. Absolutely. But I also just think that there are people out there who ain't going to listen to nothing I say and who might listen to you a little bit more and vice versa and vice versa, you know? So. Yeah. I mean, I think there's no, again, there's no one answer, right? Right. Absolutely. Like, like, I think you're, that's the, what I've been living with is the answer that the, the strategy that you're talking about, which is in my personal life. Yep. I have the line I have is that if someone says something racist, I will tell them right. that it is right. and I will leave the room. Like, you know, I'm not going to validate this conversation yep. with my presence. Um, in my professional life, in my activism and organizing life, I worry more about and think more about the people who want to, who already want to listen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, this is funny because someone just tweeted at me today. Why don't I have more Trump supporters on the show? Why don't I have more people on that I disagree with? Uh-huh. And I was like, well, c- part of me, is I just don't want to give them any airtime. That's, that's it. Period. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> I hear that, but, 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 the, but, but like, you see what I'm saying, I, I definitely hear everything you're saying. So in my book, what like the, the sort of big conceit of the book is that like, I, I care a lot about, you know, this country. And even though I, I act like I don't, like I do want Trump supporting people to change, but I really just think like, it's impossible to get any of that to happen if we don't get better at loving the people we say we love, right? And I, and I think that goes from someone like Trump purporting to love America. Is that is that is that true? Can you substantiate that claim? I don't think so. It's to someone like me, like I need to work. Like I wrote that book because I I was I was not good at loving myself, but I I got to a place where I wasn't sure that I love my mama anymore, and I wasn't sure she loved me. Mm. So I needed to. So what I'm trying to say is like sometimes I feel like we spend so much time talking about 
how we bridge these gaps between black and white, Republican and Democrat, North and South. I think that's important, but I also think people within their specific spaces and places need to talk about what like a robust, healthy love of people who they su- supposedly love looks like. What's the politics of the pe- of loving the people you actually supposedly love? And and I think that if you really do that work, I do believe we become a more liberatory nation. I do believe we start to care for the most vulnerable because people will have to admit that the people that they say they love often they don't. And then sometimes that's going to be their children. I don't think we love American children in this country. There's no way. I don't think we love white children in this country, not just black and brown. I don't think we love white. I don't think white people love white children. I don't think black folks love their children enough in like healthy, robust ways. So I'm trying to start and continue a conversation about that with the hope that people will take these conversations into family, into churches, into classrooms, and ultimately to sleep with them. And that's really what I'm trying to do with that book trying to make people feel, as you said, in a way that makes them act and love and react and revise and react and revise. You know, you're someone it's uh, hard to end a conversation with, but that was lovely. (laughs) And so I'm going to call that the end of our conversation, even though I'd like it to continue. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. I have been remiss in doing a little bit of self-promotion these days. I have a column on the Sci-Fi Channel website that I never mention, and uh, now I'm mentioning it. (laughs) If you enjoy politics and science fiction, uh, you will enjoy my column. It is called Space the Nation. It looks at science fiction through the lens of politics and politics through the lens of science fiction. Uh, There are also interviews. Um, I love doing it. I can't believe they pay me. It is really fun to write. I should talk about it more. So please check that out. And then also, we haven't done any listener questions in a while, but you should send them in because we will be doing them. The show's email address is withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. And I will end with an echo of Kiese. Go forth and love yourself. See you next week. (laughs) 